The Jericho Network on Westwood One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Joining me on this episode from the band Every Mother's Nightmare, it is vocalist Rick Rule. We talk about their new album, Grind, and a lot more. Following that, I have got the one, the only, from Black Label Society and Ozzy Osbourne. It is guitarist Zach Wild. A lot of great stuff there. And yes, I am making you wait for the interview. And so uh, stick around for that. And then finally, we will end with a guy who played Murdoch on the TV show MacGyver, but was also a singer uh, in his own right and was frontman for the band Power Station for a while. Uh, you know, some like it hot uh, and all that wonderful stuff. It is Michael DeBars. So there you go. Uh, a great episode for you as we head into the Christmas sort of break, if you want. Uh, before that, let's just quickly talk about the Ronnie James Hologram Tour. Um, it has started, and it's out there. And I have to say, I'm not so against it, quite frankly. I think that anything that keeps the music alive certainly should be celebrated. There are a few things in this Dio hologram that, that sort of bother me. There, I saw a couple of clips where... They're trying to have the hologram do some crowd interaction, you know, you, you know, that kind of thing where you say, you know, I say yay and you say yay and, you know, and I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure we should be doing crowd participation moments with a hologram. Now, of course, the show is more than just that. The hologram is only there for about eight songs. Uh, Tim Ripper Owens, who was, of course, in Judas Priest, Ice Earth, comes out and sings and Oni Logan of uh, Lynch Mob comes out and sings, and the band plays live. So, you know, let me put it this way. What are, what are your thoughts on all of this? Because it, 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 it really doesn't bother me that much, and, and I really think that for Vegas casinos and Vegas showrooms, these kind of shows would be perfect staples. I, could, I can just see a day and age where you will go to Vegas and you will have... The history of the Beatles done through hologram and it'll come out and it'll be the Beatles in the 60s and it'll be the guys uh, in the 70s and, and they'll be doing all their songs. And and I think people will find that delightful. And the same thing with Kiss. You'll, you'll go and see the Kiss hologram show in Vegas. And So I, I think the technology is a good way to keep the music alive. Um, you know, this time with, with Ripper Owens and Oni providing live vocals for most of the show... And you just sort of have the Ronnie hologram come out for eight songs. That seems fine to me. That You know, it keeps the music alive. You know, and again, do we need crowd participation with a hologram? Uh, no. But I wouldn't poo-poo the entire idea. I think, I think it's good. And I think, again, when we get to, to, to showrooms and, and museum things, like, you know, you go to the Smithsonian and you want, or you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and you step into a room, and you push a button, and, you know, the the Jimi Hendrix hologram comes to life and plays you a couple of riffs, or the, you know, the, the Gene Simmons hologram uh, pops up and spits out blood at you. I think there, there's 
practical and fun applications to the technology. So, so there you go. Um, anyway, write me at at Mitchell Lafon on Twitter. So at M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N on Twitter and share your thoughts or head over to the Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon Facebook page and, and share your thoughts on the uh, hologram and what you think. I do think it has some fun applications. I do think it also has its limitations and it shouldn't be exaggerated. You obviously should not take the, you know, Metallica hologram tour and stick it on stadium stages and have nothing but, you know, images being projected. There there has to be a certain uh, sanity to the whole process. And of course, uh, bands staying at home and sending out their holograms to tour for them, no. But uh, please, share your thoughts at Mitch Lafon on Twitter, uh, at Mitch underscore Lafon on Instagram, and of course, uh, Mitch Lafon on Facebook. There is a personal page where people uh, come down and, and share their thoughts. Uh, so that's fine with me. Anyway, let's get on over here to Rick Rule, vocalist for the band Every Mother's Nightmare. They have a new album called Grind, came out in 2017, or this year. And um, I have to say, I, I put it on, and I was thinking, oh God, why, why am I listening to this? Oh yes, I'm doing an interview. And I was actually pleasantly surprised. It really is a solid album. Just some great hard rock songs in there. So, so kudos to, uh, to Every Mother's Nightmare for not just sort of doing a paint-by-numbers or calling-it-in kind of album. Uh, grind, really, they, they grinded it out, and they came up with, with a delightful um, album. So there you go. Uh, and uh, without further ado, here is the one, the only, vocalist, Rick Rule. We are speaking with singer Rick Rule of the band Every Mother's Nightmare. The new album is Grind. It sounds absolutely fantastic. A pleasure uh, to talk to you, Rick. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having us, man. Uh, I hope you hear me well. Uh, uh, we're way down here in Tennessee, so, uh, you know, uh, I hope it all works out. <laughs> yeah, the joy of cell phones sometimes, right? Um, <laughs> right. You know, before we get into the band's history, let's get right into the Grind album. It's been, uh, what, 15 years since Deeper Shade of Grey, and of course there was the Grind EP, which has become this full length, but talk to me about putting together this album. Uh, man, we, uh, uh, I almost had, I took like a year off. Uh, I had a couple of guys, uh, the old guitar players were uh, pursuing their family lives and stuff, and uh, so I took like a year off, and you know, music was in a real weird spot you know, back then. And, um, so I wasn't real sure what I was going to do. And then, um, uh, one of the guys, uh, in the crew guys that work with us, uh, he started bringing people around and, uh, I started, I hooked up with Lonnie Hammer and, uh, Travis Butler. And, um, we got in the practice room and started, uh, we played a couple of the old songs off the first record. And, uh, right then we, uh, the chemistry was pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty outstanding. So, uh, we just decided right then to start writing a record. And, uh, you know, we just started putting, uh, pieces of it together and we were just uh you know we did a little five song ep and we were selling it out of the trunk of the car and uh you know it got turned on to bill chavis and uh he called me and i've known him forever and uh he's a straight up guy and, uh, i love him to death and uh, he just said man let's do a whole record and uh and in my head at that time i said man uh, i just kind of wanted to put a couple because ever you know the fans every time we talked they were wanting to hear old stuff and that so uh I threw eight uh, new songs on this record, and I put three live songs on, on this record. And then uh, I figured, why not? We just throw three videos on there and just make it one-stop shopping. <laughs> yes, uh, and 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 
Talk to me also about, you know, sort of what are the plans going forward? Is this that, you know, you got into this room and you had this chemistry and you said, let's just capture it? Or is this like the beginning of sort of Every Mother's Nightmare Part 2 where we're just going to move forward and play some more shows and, and start getting on a more regular schedule? Oh, man, that's, it. that's, the, that's the game we've already started. Uh, we got the original drummer, Jim Phipps, is back playing with us, and uh, we've already started uh, – writing and uh no nah, man i'm gonna do this till i die you know this is uh like i said i started it uh about half backwards when i when i jumped into it wanting a record deal and and knowing what to do with the record deal when i had it but uh you know i put this together and it you know it was kind of an experiment we did uh loco crazy first with uh with justin reimer uh producer that did the record and uh it was just an experiment to see if you know we're old school you know we're just trying to stay uh stay current and, 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 uh, you know, keep going. And, uh, it, it worked out and, uh, man, we're just ready to, we're already started writing another one. And, um, yeah, I just want to keep on going, man. Uh, we're meeting a ton of new people and playing in front of new faces. I played with kicks Friday night. And uh, last night I played with, uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to say their name wrong, but it was, uh, an all girl guns and roses, um, cover band. And they were awesome. We played with them and, uh, and, um, uh, Illinois last night, so a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm I'm loving where we're at. I'm just going to keep on trudging, keep on riding, and keep on playing. Yeah. So, um, and of course, you also had Zach Myers of of Shine Down on this new album. Uh, talk to me about that sort of collaboration, having him play with you. Well, when uh, when when I first met Zach, he was maybe 14, um, and he would come to clubs and he would sit in and play with us and. Uh, I had a little recording studio and I think I was probably the first person to ever record him. And, uh, when I started putting this together, he, uh, he does a lot of recording over at Justin Rimer's at Cross Tracks. And, uh, you know, I've known him since he was, you know, knee high to me. So I just, uh, told him what I was doing. I said, man, you want to play? And, uh, he jumped in there and, and, uh, played. And, uh, my buddy Wayne Sweeney called me from Slive and said, man, I want to play on a track. And, Man, I drug him in there too. I even drug Jim Dandy from Black Oak, Arkansas, in there. <laughs> oh yeah, Black Oak—that's such a great band. So, so, so let, let's let's look back at the band historically here. 1990, Every Mother's Nightmare comes out. It goes up to number uh, 146 on the Billboard 200. Uh, later on, Wake Up Screaming is 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 a single, and and the band is doing well. But it's the 90s. You know, that, the times have changed. <laughs> the times had changed. So, 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 talk to me about being in that environment and and being able to actually get on Billboard and get signed. But then you sort of ran up against that wall where they took your call last week, but this week they ain't taking your call. Yeah, man. So, 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 so talk I call to it me. The ballad, the ballad to be valid. Uh, the errors. That's what I call it. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so talk to me about that. So the band, the band comes out of the box, uh, kicking and screaming. Every mother's nightmare, like I said, climbs into the Billboard charts, which is impressive for for a debut. Um, and then what happens? Uh, walk me sort of through your your history and and you know where it went right and where it went wrong and and how do we get to, to where we are today? <laughs> well, I say uh, you know like you know music changed the grunge things was coming in, and uh, you know we were. Uh, we were we never considered ourselves any kind of type of band. We were just a rock band, you know, and we just happened to write a little ballad, and it you know it helped us get going. But uh, um, I think the hardest part of that was, uh, you know, you just have to uh, keep on doing doing what you do. You know, we were out on the road 
uh, writing for the for the third record and actually for the second record, and we seen the grunge thing happen. You know, we were out, you know, playing with all these bands and these bands that were coming up, and uh, you know, we were trying to to get in that vein. And uh, you know, the record company, all they uh, everything that you sent in, all they wanted was uh, I don't hear another left you make you blind, and uh, and uh, the biggest battle was you know. Love Can Make You Blind is not in right now. I mean, this is, it came back to real and it came back to gut music and, uh, you know, survival music is what I call it. Uh, you know, you just had to, you had to jump aboard or sink. <laughs> and uh, we just, you know, we haven't been out in the uh, in the public eye all this time, but we've been together and we've been writing and putting records out and playing. And, you know, we'll play in somebody's garage if they'll let us. So uh, that's just, you know, that brought us up to here. We just kept, kept, kicking and screaming and writing and uh, you know just um, everything comes back around sooner or later <laughs> it really does were there times though like you know uh, Love Can Make You Blind does well the band is on is on MTV and everybody's happy were there times when you know 95, 96 when they weren't returning your calls where you start going ah, what am I going to do now you know, is is there like a darkness that sets in or did you just go, oh, well, and I'll just go work on whatever and we'll get back to it when it's cool again? Oh, uh, you know, that's uh, I think the thing that really the thing that that this band, uh, uh, we just like writing, you know, we can sit in a room and write and if we can play anywhere for 10, 20 people, uh, 100 people, 1000 people, don't matter if they're into a little bit of what we're doing or come to see us for love can make you blind or whatever. uh that's a bright spot, but, uh, you know, music at that point, it was definitely, uh, you know, it was a kick in the face, you know, uh, like I said, I'm not sure we deserved our first one deal, but, uh, you know, uh, I knew what we were going to do and I knew what I'm going to do. So I just kind of, you know, you just, you just roll with the punches, man, to start digging deeper and, uh, and writing and play for anybody or here. And, uh, when I got to make grind, you know, it just opened a lot of doors, you know, I, I wanted to go with this at the same, uh, like I said, I wanted to be current, but I, I wanted to do what we do, but I needed it to be with a twist of what's happening now. And uh, I, I kind of captured that. I lucked into it. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm just riding it, you know, and I'm going to ride another one and uh, hope it does the same thing. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. And um, now you mentioned the first deal. You were signed, of course, by Clyde da- Clive Davis, and he has been, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he has been you know, instrumental in... Uh, Barry Manilow's life, Rod Stewart, (laughs) right, Whitney Houston, Carlos Santana, Kelly Clarkson. I mean, the the list is on and on and on. I mean, nonstop. How does he get involved with every mother's nightmare? Why is it not just some guy from the office, A and R guy that goes out? And how did he get involved? Because that's a pretty big deal. Oh yeah, man. That's uh, we were floored. Uh, You know, uh, we had Mitchell Cohen was actually the A and R man that came and seen us the first time, and um, he just called us back and said, "Man, I'm bringing Clive Davis down." And uh, immediately we're going, "Clive Davis," (laughs) you know. And uh, so we didn't even have nowhere to play or nothing, so we just rented a an an old warehouse where we used to rehearse at. uh, We built a stage and bought some beer and a couple lights and got a couple of our friends' band to play. And uh, sure enough, man, he showed up and. we played for him, and uh, I don't know what he saw in us at that point in time, but, uh, you know, he came back at the back, and he took my shoes off my feet and put them on his desk for a year, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we went from there, you know, <laughs> jump in both feet. <laughs> yeah, you really did. Now, now, you know, you listen to some of the artists that I mentioned that Clive worked with. 
What are some of the things that he suggested to you or taught you or you sat back and went, oh, okay, this is how it works. What are some of the moments where you just sort of understood the business better thanks to Clive? Well, I tell you what he what he told me from the get go, and then uh, and then I've seen it happen firsthand. Was you know what he really he said what he really liked about us is uh you know we were just straightforward. It was grip it and rip it, and uh, if you like it, you like it, and if you don't, you leave. <laughs> and uh, you know, and that, that's what he always said. He goes, "You guys are just uh you you just a rock band. You get out there and and do what you do uh, the best you can." And uh, you know, the thing that I that I saw happen was when the record label started getting rid of the people that, you know, that started with us. And then we were with new people that didn't know nothing about us. I seen how it really worked. You know, I seen, you know, it was a, you know, it's, it's, it's about making money, of course, you know, and, and songs and that, but, uh, you know, when it came down to you send them five batches of, uh, you know, five batches of songs, three or five or eight, whatever you're on your demo tape. And you know, the only answer you get back was that that's not left to make you blind. You know that's the, that's the only frustrating thing I feel. But it's not left to make you blind. But there's a bunch of good stuff on here. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not left to make you blind. Time no more. So <laughs> that was the most frustrating and uh, the hardest thing about the whole deal. Is that where I guess at this point being with uh, Bill and being on the on the on a smaller label is more rewarding because now I guess you 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 have full control of what you're doing. Correct? Oh yeah, you know, but like. I trust Bill enough, you know, anytime we, uh, the newer stuff we've been writing, you know, I'll, I'll shoot it to him and just to get a feedback, you know, but, you know, back in the day, they would be like telling you, well, you don't need to go to this note here or do this here. And I'm like, you have no idea what we need to be going and doing because you haven't rode in a van with eight guys for 12 months. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's just, uh, I think that's the best thing, uh, Today, I think music is so much more like the old days, you know, when I would buy a Van Halen record or a, uh, anything, you know, uh, Skinner, anything back then. It wasn't because it was plastered everywhere. It's because you, you hear it somewhere and then you dig it out and you find it. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm digging about the Internet and stuff today. There's so much great music out there and it's not, you know, spoon fed into one uh, particular uh what do you call it, uh, genre, if you will, or whatever. It's just uh, right. good is good, and good stands on its own, my book. really does. But, I mean, the Internet is great in the sense that you get to discover a whole bunch of bands that you never got to discover. I mean, but listen, I'm in Canada. Before the Internet and all that, I hadn't heard of Every Mother's Nightmare. It just wasn't playing up here. And same with bands yeah. from England like Thunder and, and Gothard from Sweden, or not Sweden, uh, Switzerland, never heard of them. But now I get to yeah. discover them. Uh, but the other, the, uh, the the double-edged sword to that, though, is that there's so much that it's hard to find. So, so h- how do people find you? I mean, other than doing interviews like this, what sort of, I mean, do you have a strong social media presence? Do you, is it just about getting in the clubs and playing it? How how do you see sort of the marketing plan now to get seen and known? I think we're, uh, you know, we're uh, we're uh, learning the social media game, but uh, I, you know, I think it's, uh, I think is. Is uh, you got to put in the time to get the reward, you know, and I think hitting the bricks and playing and telling anybody you can play, that's what that's what's helped us this year. You know, we got a luck and we got put on M3 uh, last year, and uh, you know that kicked open some doors. And then, uh, you know, we're just trying to uh, to answer the question. I think hitting the bricks and getting in front of people, whatever uh, outlet you can do it, is the is the way to go. You know, uh, I'm trying to make a any time I get a 
an opportunity to play other night I play with kicks and I, I'm making every opportunity to make sure that it's damn good when we go do it and when we leave we're you know, in my gut that I know we gave it everything we had and gave everybody a run for their money. See, and to me, that's what that's what a rock show should be about. I mean, I've been to so many shows now where they're running tape and they're running backing tracks. Oh, running. my Jesus, man. That's, right. oh, I'm, I'm not going to say a name, but there's a friend of mine. And they're pretty big. And he said, man, I, he goes, I feel like I'm, uh, I feel bad because uh, I haven't even hit my guitar, you know, his his guitar buttons or he hasn't sang a backup in years. And I'm like, man, I... You know, to me, the even being out of key, as long as you're out there grunting it out, trying to do it, that's the satisfaction of it. You get in my book, anyway. Well, you see, and, and that was the satisfaction in my book. I always enjoyed mistakes in concert, even if the even if it's you know the oh, guitar's yeah, out of tune yeah. or the vo- because that's that's what that's the charm. I mean, the imperfection is the best charm. Aerosmith, where they were loose and just let it all hang out, man. And that's you know. That's what it is. That's rock yeah. and roll to me, brother. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it's supposed to be. Now, um, just quickly back to Grind for a second. The the songs on there, I know some of them date back to the Grind DP of 2015, but overall, are these new songs that were written in the last, like, sort of three, four years, or are these songs that have been sort of sitting around since 93, 94, you know, 15 years? No, no, the, everything from the... From the conception of of the grind EP is everything is brand uh, brand spanking new. The only thing that I did drag up from yesteryear, and it's not from a long time ago, but uh, when I was recording, uh, uh, when Jim Dandy started coming around the studio and hanging out, uh, we were doing the, that song "Stand Up" that uh, I got him to sing on. Uh, we just recorded it because I was like, Jim Dandy would be perfect on this, and. Uh, you know, and they were like, well, write him a bunch of parts and this and that. And I said, Jim Dandy's been doing this longer than any of us. I said, I'm going to bring him in the studio. He listened to it three times and he started rapping off, you know, everything that he did. And I said, that's all it needs to be right there. And uh, that's the only song that I probably drugged, you know, and it was probably just from a couple of, of uh, writing sessions right before, you know, I took the, the year off and the band, you know, split up, but it was nothing that had ever been recorded, but. Uh, it just seemed like the time, you know, he walked in and he was doing his spill and talking shit to us. And I was like, yeah, man, let's do this right now. And, uh, and uh, it just happened. It was just one of the lucky things that happened. Yeah, you see, and that to me is how music should be. I'm 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 from the old school where it's four on the floor. You put, you know, the bass, the drums, the guitar, the vocalist in a room and you, you lock them up for nine hours. And then at the end of it, you've got an album. That's that's what it should what be. what you got when you're done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this whole stuff of it takes 14 years to make an album because you had to get every note and you comped every oh lick. on, And it's like, give me a Give me a break. Um, uh, in terms of in terms of sound, though, for for the album, did you go back to to the first two, Waking Up Screaming and 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 Every Mother's Nightmare, and say we got to sound like that? We got to be classic. We got to be the, or is it like, listen, it'll be what it'll be, and this is you know exactly okay, exactly, man. That's that's exactly where uh, you know uh, I'm. I am proud of everything that we've done, and I, I I'm going to play "Love Can Make You Blind" for every person that comes to see this play, and uh, you know I'm proud of that. But you know, I told this band, I said I don't want to be known for, you know, walls or "Love Can Make You Blind." I'm proud of it, but I want to be known for what we're doing, and I wanna, you know, I don't want to. If I'm just going to play the same exact and try to sound the same, then I've not progressed, and we're not progressing, and we might as well quit now. So. Um, 
I just, yeah, I just wanted to go at it fresh. I said, this is a, a new group of guys. Uh, we got the same attitude. Our heads all in the same direction. And, uh, you know, um, I just wanted to come out and whatever it bees, it bees. <laughs> And and it came out. It really actually came out great. Totally great. Um, you you've mentioned "Love Can Make You Blind" and as of I, it was a top thirty song for you back in the nineties. Um, talk to me about that song and and putting it together. What was it a a genuine song that sort of just came out of a writing session, or was it a bunch of A and R guys with you saying, "Okay, this is how you write a single. You put this verse here in this <laughs> chorus." I mean, talk to me yeah. about the song and and then just put what it means. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, listen. There there are those sort of kind of writing sessions where you oh, say, yeah. "Okay, it's it's hook verse whatever." You know, right? Um, but talk because that song is special to you and and. Well, or, or kind of, it's special to you, but it's also very special to a lot of the fans. Um, just talk oh, to me man. about that yeah, song. I mean, that song, uh, to be, uh, I'll be 100% honest, it just, uh, when we were writing the first, you know, we were just writing, uh, trying to write enough songs to do a set and get out and start playing our first couple of shows and, uh, and, and demoing and stuff. And uh, I, that song fell together in probably seven minutes. You know, it just, the riff came and, it just, you know, is one of them things that flowed. Uh, you know, ballads were pretty big back then, so you had a lot of, you had a lot of reference area to listen to to see what where shit was going. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, I don't want to, I don't try to do the, the only thing that I've done that wasn't um, straight from my gut and uh, something that I, you know, I know that I wrote it and I come up with the pieces with some stuff that I did on the second record and I sold my soul and that's where everything went bad because <laughs> uh, people were telling me to do stuff like, uh, you know, uh, what is, we did tobacco road and stuff like that. And David Lee Robinson did that. And everybody else has done that. And, uh, I sold my soul for 20 grand and, uh, I paid for it. <laughs> yeah. And you see, and that's what I love about bands like yourself and, and other bands from that era that have lasted it's now come back to being what it's supposed to be. It's not these sort of pre-marketed albums that are coming out. It's albums yeah. that are true music, genuine feeling, genuine licks and all that. And uh, Rick, an absolute pleasure. And, and I do recommend that folk check out Grind by Every Mother's Nightmare. It is a, a kick-ass rock and roll album. And that's all it needs to be, right? Yes, sir. Rock and roll is all it needs to be, man. <laughs> and uh, if folks want to find you online or check you out, where where should they go? Since we were talking about social media before, we have uh, our EMM Facebook page. It's Every Mother's Nightmare on Facebook, and we have our website, which is uh, it's just all capital letters emmrocks.com. And you can't and if you can't find anything there, go to High Ball Records. And uh, Bill Chavis will point you in any direction you need to go. <laughs> yeah, of course he will. And, of, and uh, I'm, I am looking at the uh, Facebook page right now, and it, it's got me down as EMN Band. Is that the uh, correct one? That's probably, well, there's two of them. That's, that's, the, that's the official. You're right. I'm All sorry. Right. <laughs> no worries. So we've got uh, EMNRocks.com. We've got EMN Band on Twitter. There is a YouTube channel as well. Uh, Rick, absolute pleasure. Absolute, absolute Thank pleasure. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know it took us a while to get it all hooked up and set up, but we got it done, and it was great. So thank you. It's all good, brother. Thank Cheers. you, man. Have a good one. You too, brother. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. 
Hey, Rock fans. Mitch LaFon here from Rock Talk. Uh, let me talk to you about True Car. There is something about True Car that a lot of people don't know. Using True Car can also help you buy a used car. In fact, there are over 700,000 pre owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide right now. Whether you are looking to buy new or used, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers you, discounts off the list price for used cars, and offers a better buying experience through our True Car Certified Dealer Network. So let me emphasize that. There are over 700,000 pre owned vehicles available from True Car Certified Dealers nationwide. You will see what other people pay for the car that you want so you know what the fair price is and can feel confident. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. Using True Car, you can also easily find the new or used car that you want. Again, once you register, you will see a real price on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car certified dealer from an actual vehicle in their lot. It's pricing you'll see before you going to the dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. True Car shows their customers all of the available incentives before they arrive at the dealership. And over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by True Car certified dealers nationwide. And there are over 13,000 true car dealers nationwide or certified dealers nationwide. So there you go. Folks, if you're going to buy uh, a new car or a used car, when you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to uh, Rick Rule of the band Every Mother's Nightmare. Uh, glad to see them uh, making music again. It's been it's been a while. Uh, started off in uh, 1990, and they're still going strong. Or in fact, their first album was in 1990. They started a little bit before that. But uh, let us move on to the main attraction, the one, the only Zach Wild, of course, heading out on tour with Ozzy Osbourne later this or later in 2018, I should say on uh, his farewell tour, Aussies. But uh, before that, the band that he fronts, Black Label Society, will release a new album called Grimmest Hits. Um, as Zach points out, he doesn't have any greatest hits, so he might as well have some grimmest hits. And then he hits the road with Corrosion of Conformity. The band will be uh, going uh, crisscrossing North America. Uh, Montreal is on that list, but then again, Almost every major city in uh, North America is. He'll also be hitting uh, Dallas and Houston and Atlanta and Raleigh and New York and Portland, Maine and uh, Kansas City, etc., etc. So uh, catch Zach and Black Label Society on tour coming this, um, well, in fact, it is going to be January into uh, February. So um, if you're going to tour North America, do it when the weather is absolutely awful and very very cold because that just makes for great touring but uh jokes aside no do do go check out uh, black label society always always a uh, fun and entertaining show so uh without further ado and i only had uh, 20 minutes with uh, the one the only zach wild um but here here is 
the Lord of Black, the one, the only, Zach Wild. Glenn Stewart, my brother. Hey, Zach. Pleasure to speak with you. It's been a while. Um, let's talk about this this new album first, Grimace Hits. Now, when when I looked at the, the track listing first, I thought, well, if this is a greatest hits, I don't know any of these songs. It turns out it's a brand new album. So... So talk to me about the title and sort of putting these songs together. No, well, that's the reason why you won't know any songs is we don't have any hits to begin with. So the whole thing is because we, we like to keep it real and we don't want to sell out. We just want to be the people's band and we like to keep it like underground, like real, real underground. <laughs> so, uh, no, it just, um, yeah, what a joke is everyone's like, oh, is this a greatest hits record? I go, no. Because in order to have a greatest hits record, you have to have hits. So that's why it's Grimace hits. But um, no, it just it was time to make a new record in between doing the Zach Sabbath thing. I got home, I had three weeks to make a record, and we we the fellas came out and we knocked it out. That's that. That's that. So um, here we are. Now we're getting ready to tour. Yeah, in fact, let, let's let's talk about the tour, and then I'll come back to this. But you're heading out on the road and coming to Montreal, actually, with the. Um, a corrosion of conformity, fellas. Whoever says fellas, by the way. But but talk to me about that tour and getting ready for it. Well, I mean, obviously it's going to be cool. I've, I've known Pepper for years, so you know we've done down together with Black Label. So it's it's going to be cool with you know Pepper rolling with COC, and then you know the Red Fang guys and I Hate God and everything like that. So uh, definitely looking forward to that. But no, putting the tour together, we're just going over the sets right now, and then. But the main things are always the priority, like such as the choreography, the fishnets, stilettos, matching the fishnets, and then rouge and eyeliner. Certain things take priority over other things. <laughs> it always does. Um, in terms of, of the set list for the upcoming tour, is it going to be more dependent on the Grimace Hits album, or is it going to be sort of everything over the years? Um, no, it's just, no, it's always a, like any other band, you know what I mean? It's just, I would put it this way, our, our problems aren't as bad as the Stones trying to put a set list together, but I mean, uh, I mean, now that we, this is the 10th record and we've been doing it for, we're going on a 20 year anniversary, it's, uh, no, it's just gonna, we just try and pick a little bit from, pretty much from every record, if we can, you know, without it turning into an eight hour set where, you know, we're selling cots and blank, black label blankets out of the merch stand. Talk to me about the output. In the early years, when you look at Sonic Brew, Stronger Than Death, 1919, Eternal, the albums were coming out at a very regular pace, a year, year and a half, two years. The last few, uh, when you go back to Order of the Black, Shot to Hell, Catacombs of the Black Vatican, we've been going on a four-year clip. Um, talk to me about that production, and, and why at the beginning were you sort of pumping them out so fast, and now you're sort of... Just, you know, picking your moments. No, I mean, well, I, I mean, I think from the beginning, uh, you know, it was kind of like we, and we were touring the whole time. So it was like, we'd make the record, we'd go out. And then I think, you know, it would be even, either the label would just be like, hey, you guys think you could do another record or whatever. I was like, yeah. And I, I mean, I always look forward to going in and making records anyway, because you're doing what you love and, you know, you're writing. So um, I think that's the reason why the, for the pace back then. But until we got to like, uh, probably order the maybe order the black or whatever. It's just when everything could, I mean, the last time we were just rolling last time we were torn, I mean, Will who did order of the black, we ended up running into him down in a, at some festival and he was with Evanescence. He was playing with them again. 
And he was like, I can't believe you're still torn on that same record. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> we were out for almost four years, torn, solid. So, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I gotta be honest with you. It's not that I prefer one over the other, but I mean, once you put the album out, I mean, the thing that did happen back in the day, we put the album out, we'd be torn and people would be going, I didn't even know you had a new record out. You know, I mean, that was one thing. So, I mean, I mean, I don't mind it this way either. This is a, this is a great way to do it. Um, let me talk to you about, um, the book of shadows. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, talk to me about the book of shadows one and two, and that sort of, uh, you know, acoustic approach to, to, to playing and stuff. That album, Book of Shadows, was the one that sort of got me to be this huge Zach Wilde fan. Um, is that something that, now you've done it with Book of Shadows too, but is that something you want to keep doing and and start off with another, with a third one down the road? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, because like, as much as I love listening to, you know, Sabbath and Zeppelin and everything like that, or listening to, you know, St. Dime over there, listening to Dime Bag Do's thing, it just, uh, I love listening to, the Eagles, the band, Neil Young, the Almonds, you know, when the Stones are doing mellow stuff and everything like that. So uh, that's just as much a part of me as I love doing the riff stuff, the riff-based heavy stuff. So, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, but when we're doing the Book of Shadows thing, it, obviously you know exact, you know what you're going to be getting. So it's going to be mellow from the beginning to the end. You know, it's just kind of a road trip, right? Yeah, and it's a great, that first one was so, was so great. Um, Zach Sabbath. You know, you have Black Label Society. You've got the upcoming tour with Ozzy. Talk to me about how Zach Sabbath fits into the the big picture. Is it just sort of we go out there and we play some of these songs and have a good time? Or is it a project that you want to develop, get into making an album? Uh, talk to me about Zach Sabbath and, and that project. Well, no, I mean, the Zach Sabbath thing started off as um, me and Blasco doing all these metal all-star shows. And so there'd always be a different drummer all the time. So... The uh, the main hub for everybody, you know, because if you play hard rock music, part of your education, like if you were a classical musician, you know Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. You you know, you know, you know, part of their catalog. If you're a classical musician, so it's just part of your education. So you know, with with hard rock, it's either you know Sabbath, you know Zeppelin, you know Deep Purple, you know, you you know certain songs that you could just say, well, why don't we do this one? You know, because there's no rehearsals. It's just like when we get there, we'll just play them. So it was like everyone could do their homework and go, yeah, I, I've played that one in cover bands since I've been 16 years old. So the whole thing is we'd always go, well, what songs are you know? And he's just like, well, he says he knows war pigs, fairies wear boots, and we could do Snowblind. I said, all right, so let's just do that. And so then the running joke just came. I would be like, well, Blasco, what songs are we going to do if we went out again? It was just like, let's just do the Zach Sabbath set. So that was the running joke. He just, you know, as a named it Zach Sabbath because we're doing all Sabbath songs every time we kept going out doing this thing. So that's pretty much how the whole thing came together. So now, now we're at where we're at. We went out and opened for clutch, our buddies in clutch. And then, uh, and now we just went out and did our own headline tour. And then we went down to South America. I mean, the credits, we just say it's awesome. Everyone loves our songs and everyone just has a great time. <laughs> yeah, they're such great songs. Um, let me ask you quickly about Ozzy. Yeah, we've sold millions and millions of records. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, I would certainly be willing to pay for a for a live DVD of the band or or a live CD. I think it just would be absolutely entertaining. Um, just quickly on Ozzy, the the he's doing this farewell tour. 
Talk to me about what it means to be working with, as you call him, the boss, and and what it's meant for you over the years. Um, well, no, I mean, I, I always said, I mean, I'm just a huge fan. I mean, the, the whole thing is to be like Ozzy because of his love for the Beatles and John Lennon and everything like that. When the Beatles were, gonna, they were going to go back out, and they asked Ozzy to sing in place of John and then do all his harmonies and do his lead vocals. You know, Ozzy be like over the moon. So I mean, the whole thing is uh, for me playing. Being such a huge, I mean, Ozzy being such a huge part of my life since I've been 11, 12 years old when I first discovered Black Sabbath. And then when he started playing with St. Rhodes and then, you know, Father Jake over there and everything, me being a huge fan. And then next thing I know, I'm in the band. You know, it's no different than me being a huge Yankee fan and Thurman Munson guy. And then next thing I know, I'm playing catcher for the New York Yankees. So, and I'm standing in the same spot where my heroes did. So, uh, I mean, that's the way I've always looked at it. So, but the whole thing is it's a huge honor. So, uh, you know, getting together and doing this thing, it's just, I mean, it's great. I mean, as soon as, as soon as we started doing these shows again, once again, it just, it picked up right where I left off and I just us crying and laughing all the time. And just thinking to myself, it's a miracle. Anything ever gets done around here because we're always cracking up. Yeah, you really are. And, and and it's going to be a great tour. Hopefully that'll, that'll roll through uh, Montreal. I I do want to ask you about, the Aussie album, No More Tears. That was the one that seemed to be sort of the breakthrough album with that lineup, with you in it, um, certainly more so than, uh, you know, uh, Rest for the Wicked, No Rest for the Wicked. Um, what were your, some of your memories looking back on that album and putting together uh, songs like Mama, I'm Going Home, uh, I'm Coming Home, and um, the, the No More Tears song? Well, no, I mean, that, that album, I mean, I loved when we made No Rest for the Wicked, for sure. I mean, you know, my first album, other than doing Miracle Man and everything like that. But, uh, no, No More Tears, you know, I actually recorded that album twice, but I mean, uh, no, I, I just have nothing but great memories, actually, of every record that we did. So, I mean, but uh, No More Tears definitely, you know, I guess the stars aligned on that one. So it was just, um, yeah, I, I had a great time when we made every record. Now, each record has special moments and special memories to me. Because, I mean, Ozzy would always say that with all the albums he's made anyway. His was always kind of like based on whether he had a great time making a record or he was miserable when he was making a record. So, uh, but no, I mean, that one, we definitely had a blast on that one for sure. That was definitely a blast. Um, getting back to Grimmest Hits for a second. Uh, talk to me about the songwriting process because the last time I had spoken to you or early on in, in, in the Black Label Society uh, career when I had spoken to you, it was my, you know, you, you would sit down, you just punch out a song, record it, and off we go. Uh, talk about crafting the songs for Grimmest Hits. Well, no, pretty much like every other Black Label album. I mean, uh, you know, you manage me. I mean, you're just, I'm like, when, when do we have time to make the record? You're like, well, when you get home in January, you have from January 3rd, then the guys will come out January 22nd. I'm like, all right, well, I got basically three weeks to write a record. So each day I look forward to it. I go out there, have a couple Odin force blend and then just start jamming through my, my rig and then writing riffs. And I mean, you know, I mean, the heavy songs are always based on, you know, Mount Riffmore, where it would be Lord Iomi, Hope Page and, you know, the Dark Knight over there, uh, uh, Pontiff Blackmore. So it's just, uh, you know, if you can write riffs on two strings and that's all you have, just two crayons and see what you can come up with. So then you just have to put your thinking cap on and just write riffs. So, uh, I mean, I enjoy it. And then, you know, the mellow stuff is the mellow stuff. So when I'm taking a break from, 
you know, doing the heavy stuff just to clear my head and just step away from it for a little while. You know, you pick up an acoustic guitar and sit behind a piano or something, and then you just and see what comes out then. And then, you know, and then you get back to doing the heavy stuff. So it's just, um, yeah, I mean, the writing process is pretty much always the same way. And then, you know, Jeff will come down and Jade and the fellows come out to the Black Vatican. And then the drums are set up, everything's ready to go. And I just sit, Jeff will sit right next to me. And he's like, what part is this? I go, well, here's the intro, then here'll be the verse, and then this will be the, the chorus, then this is the, the re-intro, then this will be the chorus, then this is the guitar solo. And this, he's like, all right, then we just plays air drums. And then he just listens. He goes, "What? All right, cool, I got it." And then we go. He'll just go on the drums. We'll go through it maybe twice, and then we put a click track up. And I go, "All right, let's track it." And that's it. Done. Next song. So yeah, I mean, there's no. We don't sit in a rehearsal room for six weeks and go over pre-production and go over set. You know, you, no, we don't do that. You know, um, Dario Lorena uh, came into the band in the, recently. Uh, talk to me about what he brings to the whole Black Label Society um, thing. What, what you know, he's great guy out from Lizzie Borden. Uh, talk to me a little bit about Dario. Oh, Dario's phenomenal, man. So I mean, he, you know, he just came out with his album, his solo record, and it's just, I mean, it's blistering. So, uh, you know, aside of just being just the awesome human being that he is, Odoom. I mean, it's just uh no, he's super talented. He can play. He plays like guitar like it's nobody's business. He can play piano. He uh, he sings, and he makes an amazing chicken piccata. So it's just you know, I mean, we couldn't ask for more. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> you know, you've always had a great sense of humor, and you can really see that in the Room of Nightmares video. Uh, talk to me about not sort of taking yourself so seriously, where you've you've injected a lot of fun into what Black Label Society does. Well, that video is not meant to be funny. I, the whole thing is with the state of the music business and where we're at right now, that was um, that was a birthday party we actually played at for an 11-year-old. So we also play circumcisions. We also play bar mitzvahs, sweet 16s, weddings, and the openings of car dealerships. We've been doing that as well. well whatever. Put it this way. A hundred bucks is a hundred bucks. Yeah, I can see that. And, and and the one thing you won't be playing this year is, is a New York Giants uh, Super Bowl parade, but maybe next year, right? Uh, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think we have to. That won't take time away from rehearsals. <laughs> no, not this year. Um, how do you look back at your career? I mean, here you're a guy coming out of New Jersey. You got picked up by Ozzy. You, got, you had this massive success. Do you ever look back and sort of say, man, how did this happen? Uh, well, I, mean, I definitely... I think the good Lord when I wake up in the middle of the day before I go to bed. So, I mean, I'm truly blessed to have everything I have, without a doubt. So, you know, you just, yeah, but at the end of the day, you just keep, you know, you know, somebody said at 50 years old, what would you say to an 18-year-old Zach Wild? I said, I'd say the same thing I do now. Just be a good person and work hard. I, I you know, there's no, there's no secret for, there's no substitute for hard work. There, there just really isn't. You want to get good at guitar? You got to practice. I mean, that that's it. You know, there's no magic formula. There's no cream you can rub on your hands. Or no, no, you got to practice, man. And you got to put the time in. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the difference. So, I'd just be doing the same thing I'm doing now. And, you know, and like the whole thing is, if I wasn't blessed to have Ozzy in my life and have our Black Label family, my everything would still revolve around music. I'd be in a wedding band. I'd be in a cover band. 
uh, we'd, I'd be teaching, we'd have, I'd be either owning my own music store, but everything would revolve around music. I, I wouldn't have some crummy job that I can't stand that I'm just miserable going, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, no, that, that, that would be something. Um, and then I'll finish on this, uh, Pride and Glory, which was another great uh, project that you had. Is that something that you think that at some point you'd like to revisit? Because it had more of sort of, I don't want to say country rock to it, but it, it certainly was more Leonard Skinner-ish. Uh, talk to me about that project, and, and is that something you, you would like to maybe make another album in that vein? Yeah, I mean, I mean, with the, the P and G stuff, I mean, yeah, it was definitely more of a three piece. You know, I mean, obviously when we do the Zach Sabbath thing, there's more jamming going on and stuff like that, just because it's a, a three piece. But uh, but yeah, P and G. You know, I'm saying the style, the music, and everything like that lent itself, you know, more Skinnerty, Sabbathy type thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, the 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 door's always wide open to either revisit that and, and do other things in between. There's no reason why I couldn't do that either. Would you would you consider playing some of those songs at a Black Label Society show at some point? Actually, when we did, when we were doing Unblackened, we actually play some. You know, when we do the Unblackened stuff with Black Label, right. and we go out as Unblackened, yeah, we definitely did, uh, I mean, with the Sweet Jesus, we did a whole bunch of other ones. So, yeah, but out of that, with Losing Your Mind, uh, Machine Gun Man, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always fun revisiting them and playing them again. I mean, it's just, uh, it's definitely cool. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, Zach, just uh, thank you for your patience. Nah, no, no problem at all. Well, I'm glad I'm <laughs> glad you made it, man. Good uh, to talk to you, brother. Yeah. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to uh, Zach Wild. I uh, think we got caught up on everything that is going on in the Zach universe for 2000. 18. You got to love that. Love, love uh, Zach Wild, Black Label Society, and of course his work with Ozzy Osbourne. And uh, we are going to finish uh, today's show with Michael DeBars. Uh, he is, of course, a singer, and his most recent uh, solo album is called The Key to the Universe. But some of you may know him as former husband to Pamela DeBars, who if you were a rock fan, I don't need to explain who that is. But more importantly, he was Murdoch on the television show MacGyver. So if you are a fan of 80s rock and 80s music like I am, you probably sat around and watched 80s TV and early 90s TV. And MacGyver was probably one of those shows. And so uh, we talked to him about being Murdoch. We talked to him about uh, his most recent release and all kinds of stuff. So, uh, without further ado, let us end this episode with the one, the only, Michael DeBars. We are speaking with Michael DeBar. Uh, obviously, he's actor, musician, radio host, all kinds of wonderful stuff. Uh, Michael, a great pleasure. We haven't spoken in about a year and a half, two years. Last time it was for the new album, The Key to the Universe, which is no longer a new album, but it's still the latest album you've put out. Um, let's start with let's start with that one, actually. Um, Talk to me about recording it and, and getting it together and, and what was sort of the compelling motivation to make a new solo album. So I could look great on a cover. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you know, it's it, it, it's a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago in my life is, it seems like an eternity, you know, because I, I do a lot of things at once. And it was a lovely opportunity to go to Rome. An old friend of mine has a label over there. And he said, you know, come and make this album. And I thought, well, that, that'd be fun. You know, so, and I was working with Nigel Harrison, who was my um, colleague from Silverhead, our first band in the early 70s. And he then went on to play with Blondie and so on. So it was a very kind of, we'd written a lot of songs together with different people and my stuff. Um, and so I thought it would be lovely, you know, and it was composed and, and created right there. I didn't go there with any preconceptions, you know, because that, I tell you, man, over the years I've learned this. I love to go into the studio and just make it happen there rather than premeditating. And I know a lot of people say, well, you're going to spend a fortune doing that. But these guys have an enormous amount of finances. <laughs> so therefore, I, I thought I would take full advantage and, and get it right on the spot. And that was really cool. Drama Clive Deemer from Radiohead and Danny Robinson, a, a Hendrix-ish heavy but sensuous guitar player so we had a lot of talent in there and and it was just wonderful to walk around rome and see these statues and, and these beautiful iconic um figures there that was very um inspiring i had a great time and the the title was somewhat frivolous you know in terms of a question really the key to the universe as we all know that is love and compassion especially now um, given the circumstances of our political climate. I had a ball, yeah. Mitch. Yeah, now, where does that leave us in terms of recording a new, new album? I mean, you know, this was 2015. The last one before that had been 1986. Is it something that you still want to pursue, or is it, well, I got it out of my system. Let me go on just being the radio Oh, host. good Lord, no, no, okay. no, 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 no. The system, my system is Chuck Berry's system. You know, I, I you know. I, it's not a, a hobby. I've been playing rock and roll music for 50 years, um, and I will continue to do so. When you say album, I don't know what that is. So what I'm going to do is um, release some songs in January of next year, which I've been working on with Clem Burke um, of Blondie fame. And uh, and I, I, I will always make music. I, I play guitar every day. You know, um, as is evidenced by, you know, I, I have an enormous amount of material, man. You know, I mean, I'm sitting next to this, you know, this wonderful guitar right here, this black, matte black Les Paul. So that will never leave me. But I don't believe in the idea of issuing albums. I think it's absurd. Is the album concept done at this point? Because, you know, a lot of bands yes. have gotten to releasing singles. Um is that somewhat of a tragedy that 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 it's no. it's no longer viable? It's a tragedy. Well, if you think that, then it is. You know, um, everything is how you perceive it to be. I don't want to get too metaphysical. It's too early. But <laughs> if you if you really look at stuff, um, albums tragic, rock and roll is dead. All, all of these things are absurd. It's your view. My view is, muddy waters will, is forever. Hamlet is forever. The Mona Lisa is forever. Rock and roll is. If you look at it in a way of deep respect and love and affection, I could give a shit about what anybody else thinks. So therefore, is albums dead? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. As long as music is alive and people are making it, that's all that matters. You know, yeah. I, 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 I don't mourn the death of the album. 
You know, and I agree. I agree with you as long as music is being made. You know, the other day I went out to see a, a Keith Urban show and people on my Facebook were like, how dare you? You're the metal guy. Why are you going to that? And it's like, well, he's great because he's a great guitar player. Well, yeah. And, and I, I got a chance to, to learn something because I had never been to that kind of show before. And the fact right. is, is that he had 10,000 people in absolute delirium. They were completely That's enthralled. Sweet. And and that's yeah. what music should be. It shouldn't be about this is better than that. It should be does it make somebody happy? Yes. Thus, it is valid. Period. Well, that is a that's a whole other, you know, uh, subject. Uh, the the division of genres is absolutely fascistic. Oh, I hate, I it. hate country. What 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 is it? I hate country. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like a nine year old. You know, embrace goodness and embrace people who are good at what they do. You don't have to dig it and play it and then run to it and exercise to it and make love to it. It exists. You know, it, it's I've never understood the division in music or the arts. You know, I mean, you'd like Godard's movies and, and some people like Michael Bay movies. You know, who cares? You go to the stuff that you dig you know, and, and to judge it, it's good. Keith Urban is an amazing guitar player, and he's a wonderful entertainer. As you said, 10,000 people getting off. What is wrong with that? Yeah. You know, personally, I'd rather see a resurrection of the MC5, but that's my taste. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you're right about the division of the music scene. As a hard rock fan, you know, going through the 80s, there was hard rock, and then it became glam rock, and then it became hair rock, and then it became death metal and black metal, and, and it's like, Jesus Christ, you know, stop it. it you know, music well, put is it music. this way, the rock star is now an energy drink. Right. Okay? So <laughs> if funny. you go onto that premise, Mitch, then all is, is finished, all is bullshit. You know, you get, you've got 7-Up, you've got Mountain Dew, You've got Dr. Pepper. You've got Sergeant Pepper. You got fuck off. You know what I mean? It's all the same. It, you know, and it's an absurdity yeah. to get involved in death thrash. And by the way, glam rock was the, the most misunderstood uh, genre of music. You know, Silverhead, my first band. Right. And that's what I want to get to, Silverhead and, yeah. and, and glam right. rock, because that, that was... You were on the cusp of a new kind of thing. And it's like, well, really? Wasn't it more like of an extension of, of the Brit scene at the time anyway? So, so let's talk Silverhead and glam rock and that scene. Um, what was the band trying to do, if that's, if that's not too much of a general question? Get laid. Right. And uh, worship at the altar of Muddy Waters and Brian Jones and wear velvet and eat lots of hashish, which was the best way of getting off in those days. Those days are long gone for me. But I existed for, I think I had a nap in August of 72. I, um, it was just mad and intense and Babylonian and Caligula and decadent and beautiful. And we'd never been to America. We were 19. So, you know, the whole glam thing is just bullshit, you know. Yes, we wore makeup, but we wore the same makeup for two weeks, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it wasn't precious or, um, you know, we weren't divas. Uh, it wasn't sort of um, a, a ziggy vibe because David invented that. It was a theatrical experience. 
Ziggy Stardust. I say it was just let's have fun, let's be androgynous, let's experiment, let's play bluesy music, let's sex and fun. I mean, our big song was more than your mouth can hold, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the the two albums, though, Silverhead and Sixteen and Savage. Why mm. was there not able to get to a third album? Where did it sort of take a left turn and and not? move on to be sort of the next big thing because the scene was blossoming at the time kiss of course uh which silver had opened for uh obviously and they opened for us actually too we never we never um we never opened up for kiss Uh, that was detective silverhead kiss opened for silverhead in new york city in 1972 Oh, wasn't it seventy? And I remember when the when the drum riser, we were all in the wings, stoned out of our heads, and the drum riser went up, and we went, "Oh my God, we've got to follow this breathing fire, bloody wonderful." And I love Gene and Paul; they've been fantastic to me over the years. But um, we never, we never, they never opened for you know, we never opened for them, which I always thought Gene always reminds me of, you know. But uh, Silver was a very specific thing, and the, your question was, why wasn't it this? The reason was narcotics. You know, we took a wrong turn, and uh, a few of us became deeply involved, and that became more important than the music. And that was the demise of a wonderful band, and it happens a lot, you know. It really does. Now, I'm looking at a concert poster from January 26, 1974, and you're right. It says, Fleawood Mac is the... Opener or the headliner, Silverhead is second, and Kiss was first. So That's correct. So, and by the way, the Fleetwood Mac that you're referring to was completely bogus. Right. It there wasn't... were no members of the, of the. Can you imagine that? There were no original members of the band. The, the manager, I think his name was Cliff something or other, um, and now he's probably hanging from a cliff. The five uh, you know, members of that band were nothing to do with Fleetwood Mac. The manager owned the name. And that was that tour was ridiculous because once people got wind of it in Rolling Stone, uh, you know, we had to come out to like, where's Christine? (laughs) It's just one of the vagaries of rock and roll touring and and brand name. Yeah, the the band there consisted of Elmer Gantry, Kirby Gregory, Paul Martinez, John Wilkinson, and Craig Collinge. All all these. The, obviously, the names that you associate right away with Fleetwood Mac, right? Oh, immediately, yeah. Collins and Ding Dong. Yeah, what the <laughs> fuck? Um, I mean, just amazing. It's uh, funny. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was like performance art. But then again, I've looked at it all like it was a performance, like it was some wonderful act. You know, uh, Silverhead was something that was very real. Everything after that was... Um, you know, I learned how to do it, and that's the kiss of death. <laughs> you know, it does a rock and roll. You got to go out there and feel it. You know, everything up, detective, and all of that was sort of manufactured. That's why I find it so hilarious that the monkeys were never really, really uh, understood. You know how right. that happened. That the whole myth of the monkeys is fascinating to me, and I talk about it on my show a lot whenever I play them. I did want to talk about Detective, and it's interesting that you said that Detective was manufactured. Uh, I do want to explore that. In what sense was Detective manufactured? Were the songs not real? I mean, was was a song like Recognition that you wrote not really oh, your no, expression? The, the, 
Well, I love that you picked that out, Mitch, and, and, and I bless you for your research. Uh, that song was right from my soul. That's the song that I believed in the most. You know, everybody wants to be recognized. It was the hook of it, and that was very important. What I'm talking about is more of an overview of how the band um, became a band. There was a very powerful promoter in Los Angeles. I then met Miss Pamela. I was living with Miss Pamela Vaughn with the band fame which is a book that is celebrating its 30th year anniversary this year. It's amazing. And um, this promoter took a shine to me and loved Silverhead and put it together. Me with Michael Monarch, ex-Steppenwolf guitar player, Prodigy, Bobby Pickett and John Hyde, and they loved Zeppelin. So the music was very... that kind of groove, whereas I love to roll, uh, you know, and not just rock. And it was a very hard rocking band, um, but it was not my cup of tea particularly. And, and I think that that was good because it was uh, something I had to reach for and create with these guys who I loved. And it came out on Swan Song Records, which was Led Zeppelin's uh, labeled. Um, was there any particular pressure on being on a Led Zeppelin label? Was the band involved in oversight and, and checking in on you? Once we'd signed with Zeppelin, we never heard from them again. Wow. Because the, the, the drama surrounding Zeppelin was so intense. Robert's precious son, Carrick, passed away. Bonzo. There were so many problems. They were the biggest man in the world. They were not a band. They were a cult. You know, they, they were playing to the disaffected kids in the parking lots of America. It was not a band. It was a, it was a, it transcended a band, I believe. Critics hated them. Everybody else adored them. And the pressure was so enormous on them. Um, and we came along at a time when they were so distracted with legality and various uh, personal issues, as was I. You know, I was addicted to everything. And they gave us a million dollars. And a year later, we still hadn't made an album. If you give a 23-year-old a million dollars in Los Angeles, um, you know, it's going to get crazy. It really is, actually. Yeah, it really is. Um, I I do want to talk to you about that that first album, though, from from 77. It includes the track Ain't None of Your Business. You had been, of course, with Detective Touring with Kiss. They decide to record the demo, Ain't None of Your Business, with Peter Chris singing. It has never been released. Um, how did that come about? Did, did the band sort of shop it to Kiss? What, did the songwriters shop it to Kiss? Um, were you at all involved in, in that decision-making? How, how did that um, turn of events come, come to play? I have no idea. I mean, we got a demo, and uh, Kiss got a demo. I had no idea who provided it. I mean, I liked it. It was, I thought it was great, you know, great song, very bluesy song and, and a great riff to it. And, um, and I love Peter Chris's voice. I always thought he was a terrific singer, you know, kind of like Rod, kind of that vibe, you know, but it's, uh, it was just a great song. The machinations behind it, I have no idea. It was none, it was none of my business. You know, I, I don't recall any of the um, business side of things. You know, I was in a cloud. It's a pity that that song's never come out. Now, speaking about in a cloud, uh, early 80s, you, uh, or mid-80s, I guess it was, you, you helped put together something called RAD, Rocks, Rock Against Drugs. Um, mm. Talk about the motivation for putting that together, and did it accomplish its mission? Did it serve its purpose, or was it somewhat camp? Dig this. If one person quit what they were doing and lived a healthy life, 
it was a tremendous success. The reasons behind it were many. I would just got off heroin. This is 81. And like anything, when you quit cigarettes, for instance, then you proselytize that to everyone you meet. So I was very much in that frame of mind. My dear friend, Danny Goldberg, who was Peter Grant's um, right-hand man in Swansong, uh, was my manager. And he's a real healthy um, metaphysical guy in the midst of the madness of the music business. He was president of three labels, but he had a real conscience. And we, we, we realized after Live Aid and I'd done Live Aid and I had some sort of some clout you know, in this mad business, he suggested that maybe we do something uh, to give back. And I thought, wait a minute, what if I call Billy Idol and Ozzy and, and John Bon Jovi and Steve Jones and say, you want to do these like 30 second spots at MTV? We went to Washington and we pitched it as a PSA, public service announcement. And we got, you know, shall we say, an enormous amount of money <laughs> from government agencies um, and Coca-Cola, I think, also. And, and there we were shooting, you know, and it just seemed to make perfect sense. Is it is it Spinal Tap? Yeah. Is, is it does it look um, in retrospect sort of foolish and and the war on drugs? It's never been worse than it is as we are speaking, Mitch. Um, I, uh, you know, yes, to all of those things. Do I care? I care about people uh, very much, and uh, I have suffered from uh, the vagaries and uh, of, of addiction, and I just wanted to do something about it uh, post Live Aid, um, and we did. And it was the second most biggest PSA uh, announcement ever created, other than Smokey the Bandit. No, Smokey the Bear, I think, was number one, and we were number two. two right. And... Um... You know, I didn't really get to see them much up here on in on Canadian TV because it was an American thing. Of course, now with YouTube, yeah. you can sort of dial up the Gene Simmons one anytime you want. Um, but talk to me about that that need to help others because you know, up until '81, uh, you were not sober, and 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 it was you know, it, I don't want to say it was a mess, but <laughs> there was a lot of stuff going on. Now you've you've helped out, you volunteer with addiction and homeless teens, and, and um, talk to me about that kind of work and, and what that brings to you and what it means to you. Well, it's not work. It's service. I think that gratitude and um, service, if you want to get into this, um, is the reason why we're, why we're here, because if you don't care, nobody will care for you. If you don't love yourself, nobody will love you. And the way I think that I found was having some appreciation of who I am rather than the self-loathing and the doubt that comes with drugs. Um, once one um, got rid of all of that, I, and, you know, I, I am absolutely absorbed in the word homeless. I I, I cannot stand it. I, I, I literally have tears in my eyes now thinking about driving down the street in my fancy car and looking out the window and seeing somebody muttering themselves on the corner. It just kills me. And I invariably stop and do that. So that's my individualistic life in terms of like doing it on a, you know, there are various foundations that I belong to. I don't ever want to go into it because it sounds very self uh, promotional and uh, self aggrandizing, but I believe that if we don't help each other, we're fucked. I believe that too, quite frankly. Um, 
what you may not know about me is I, I actually did a master's in, in psychology, educational psychology to help kids. Wow. And, and, and wow. that is something awesome. that, that I hold dear. And, yes. you yes. know, uh, years ago I had a chance to interview Ronnie James Dio. And, of course, you're thinking, well, yes. it's the guy from Black Sabbath, blah, blah, blah. And he had a foundation called Children of the Night that helped uh, yes, teen yes, prostitutes I, I, get off the street. Yes, I was very much part of that organization. <clears throat> yeah, and, and, you know, instead of spending half an hour talking about Black Sabbath and Dio and Vivian Campbell, we spent that entire time talking about that organization because that made more sense to me than whether or not Mob Rules is a better album than Heaven and Hell. And Well, here's the thing, Mitch. You, you, you're in a very um, interesting position in your life because you, you uh, clearly care about what happens to people. And, and yet one is, if you listen to you know, um, metal stations, primarily it's this sort of young, aggressive uh, struggle, this, this power that they don't have in their own lives and I think sublimated by loud, aggressive music. I adore loud, aggressive music, but I, I also feel that um, once powers can be uh, constrained, you don't have to show them. The power that I have now is in a place where I'm connected with various foundations that bring instruments into schools that get people clean off the fucking streets. I'm not here to talk about Iron Maiden. Right. You know, we are at a critical time, as you know. And everybody in every walk of life has to hold hands while they're doing, while they're walking. And if we don't, uh, there'll be nothing to walk on. That, that, that's right. Now, now, how how are you? How are you, or were you involved with Children of the Night? Because I love Ronnie and, and the wife, you know. And and every, every, once you start getting into that world, it's like Stephen, you know, Benzant has a Little Kids Rock that he belongs to, and his foundations. You know, once you get into that world of, of service, uh, you know, and Ronnie, remember Purple, I was on Purple Records, so with Silverhead. So Ronnie and I paths have crossed many, many times. And I did never, ever speak about how many martial amps, you know, Vivian had. <laughs> I'm not interested in that stuff. So obviously we go to more gentle and beautiful places. He was a great person. Yeah, oh, he absolutely was, and, and it 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 almost seems silly to 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 move on in the interview and talk about TV and stuff. So, so let me ask you then first about uh, sobriety. Was there what was that moment where you just said enough? Was it the the toll on on the family? Were you looking around at faces going, uh, uh, "I'm causing too much pain"? Was it? Did you look at yourself in the mirror and say, "I'm causing myself too much pain"? Was it a doctor that said? dude, you're going to die next week. Stop. Like, where was that epiphany? I looked in the mirror. Okay. I didn't see, I didn't see pain. I saw a bloated schmuck. So vanity, I think was the key. <laughs> wow. Well, listen, if that's I, what I'm, it takes, that's what it takes. I hey, mean, you know, Mitch, I'm not, I'm not kidding. My ego was so massive and, and yet so destroyed all at the same time. I mean, imagine that convolution of emotions. And I looked in the mirror, and as I'm fond of saying, I looked like Iggy's grandma. And I thought, you know what? This is absurd. And Danny uh, Goldberg, again, um, suggested that perhaps I meet with a guy called Paul Fishkin. Paul Fishkin was his partner in Modern Records, 
who made the great discovery that none of Fleetwood Mac was signed to Warner Brothers individually and went to Stevie and said, Stevie, you want to make a solo record? And that's one of the greatest rock and roll stories ever because she was unsigned. They got it. So they were very smart people. Paul, however, was suffering from this disease, took me to a meeting and I went, yeah, this is it. And from that moment, no rehab way before all of that crap. There was none of that. There was no bodyguards who kept you away from heroin. That, that culture doesn't, didn't exist in 1981. When I thirty six years ago, <laughs> but to answer your question, it was vanity, which turned into a love of service and and um, and wanting to make a change in the world. Was it? I mean, was it that easy? Where you just sort of turned it off, like like turning yes, off the tap? Yes, it was easy. Yeah, it was easy. Wow, that's so, you so... can change your life in one minute. Right. You can go from a selfish asshole into a person who is, believes in love, compassion. Tolerance, no judgment, service, family, friends, community. In one second, it doesn't take a. a you don't need to be taught how to be beautiful. No, it true. comes. It's a flash. You know why do you think? What is, what is a halo? Why why is great breakthroughs in spiritual people always portrayed with having a light around their heads? You know, this isn't a, a manufactured thing. It's something that happens to you. Um, and you wake up clean, and I woke up clean, and I stayed that way. Yeah, of course I shook and, and shake and, and sweat and for a few days, uh, you know. But that's physical. You know, spiritually, I was going, this is for kids. This is for, you know, scared, fearful people. This is the fuel that, uh, you know, drives this wreck of a car. I want to drive a, a cool car. So, <laughs> the energy that I got from it was instantaneous. Would you describe yourself then, before that time, as you just said, a selfish, a selfish asshole? I mean, were you completely, just a, okay. a completely egoic um, man who created various personas uh, through which to get through the day or night? Uh, therefore, everything was um, on the fly. There was no substance to to really what I'd become. I mean, I started off with the joy of show business in To Sell With Love when I was 16 with Sidney Poitier in 19, whatever it was. And, um, you know, and I loved and I was so enthusiastic and Silverhead was 1920, whatever. It was beautiful. And, but it, you know, I became a victim um, of the lifestyle itself, of the absurd idolatry that you experience, you know, and the adoration of people that have no idea who you really are. And that makes you not know who you really are. It's catching. It's a virus. Do you look back on those early days with regret or as a learning experience? No, 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 no. regret. Okay. No, 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 never. Oh, God. Regret nothing, you guys out there, you know, because it brings you to where you are. And I hope right. this isn't sounding like sermonizing. No, but, but I mean, I, I've always felt the same way that, Everything leads to where you are now, and, and it's a learning experience. And and you learn, you know, what to do, and you learn also what not to do to, to get ahead. The mistakes are right. the key. Yeah, you either burn or you learn. Well, you know, it, when I, and we talked about the masters before, we we used to learn about something called error analysis, and mm -hmm. and it just always made sense. People always have this great sense of failure. Oh, I didn't. I screwed this up. I'm no good. 
Well, no, you just learned how not to do it the next time. That's, that's... Well, that's precisely correct. <laughs> and, and if you are in, a, but you have to be in the frame of mind of an educative consciousness. You have to be able to see that. You know that that that's one of the great, I think, metaphysical um, rules, if you will, the law of um, being able to identify that you actually didn't make that work, and as you said so articulately, it won't happen again. Yeah. And and one's life is a that is the basis, I think, of self awareness. Because you trim away the fat. I just moved houses. I bought a new home here in California. And I went through all of these boxes of my past. And, and boxes of my past is a great title. But it was all of these photographs and all these documents and album covers and, and, and movie posters. And, and me and Heather Locklear embracing on television. And me and Jerry Seinfeld. And so much of the stuff that's happened in my life. And you get sentimental about it. Or you accept it. And you move on. You know, you've got to trim the fat yep. and exist in the moment. You can't live for the past or former glories. You know, today is the most glorious day. <laughs> you know? I'm about to, you know, do my show and I'm so excited. And I've been doing it almost four years for Stephen Benzant, Sirius XM Channel 21, you guys out there. Yeah. A great channel, by the way. I have Sirius XM, and, and it's a great show. And he'd be a great interview, too. I'll have to track him down someday. Um, Obsession, the, the song that an emotion made very famous. It is one of those where I look back as a young teenager, and, and it just, you know, between the Iron Maiden and the, 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 the Def Leppard and stuff, this one sort of stuck out, and, and I was not allowed to admit that I liked it then, but I do like it now. Um, how how important was that song to your career, to Holly Knight's career, to to just everything you do? Because that sort of brought you into okay, I'm not singing it, but I'm the songwriter of this massive. I mean, you did sing it with Holly, but but the version that we all know is not you. Um, did that change things for you? Well, my accountant was extraordinarily happy. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I did, did, that's the glib response. Um, it was a, a fantastic experience. Holly Knight is a great writer. If you listen to the lyric, it was about drugs. It, the chorus is, who do you want me to be? So therefore, the narrator of that song has no idea who he or she is. So the song is about exactly what we were discussing, which is self-analysis yep. and learning from your mistakes. But I was writing a pop song. So I had to make it about a relationship. The metaphor being that that relationship was about love and how to get it and, and the links that you go to to get it. That means you change yourself to what you think will fit into a cool relationship uh, that will develop. Well, that's bullshit. Right? So the song is a very, um, it was a major lyric. I wrote it, I was six months off uh, everything. And I, um, I wrote the lyric in five minutes. Holly wrote the music in six minutes. And in, uh, you know, a day later, we were in the studio with Mike Chan. And, and then they got it. It was put in a movie, our version, some, some movie. And then uh, they heard an A&R man at Animotion's label, boom, and, and it exploded. And it was number one everywhere and continues to be licensed every, every year. And has been very good to me, yeah. It's a great song, and, and even before the interview today, I listened to it again, and you just, you can't help but not sing along. I mean, it just, it's just a, 
and I don't mean to be dismissive, but it's a nice ditty, right? It's, it's just, it's... Well, I, knew, I never saw it as a ditty. I, I, you know, as written, um, I, I thought it was really important. I think the reason that it was such a success was that we are all obsessive. We all have that in us. And I think the notion of who do you want me to be to make you sleep with me is not a ditty. And and I didn't mean that With in a dismissive way. No, no, but I didn't mean that in a dismissive way. But it's just I think like, an emotion, you know, the version they did was wonderful, but it was a pop production. Imagine that played acoustically. Oh, that'd be great. You might have I've to. Done it in my, I've done it in my documentary, which is coming out next year. And the title of the documentary is Who Do You Want Me To Be? And at the end of the documentary, I play that song in its entirety on an acoustic guitar. Uh, in fact, I, I was looking into uh, the documentary. Um, talk to me about that. Is that a, um, you know, is that, do we go back to sort of the, the beginning and go through all the different bands and stuff, or is it more of from a certain period on on to now? Uh, what is the exact uh, nature of the documentary? It's it's incredible um, variety. You know, I was educated in public schools. My father is a marquee. I have a t- he's gone, long gone, but I have a title. I'm a blue blood. I played, you know, all of these um, vicious kids on telly, and then I did to so with love after having had this absolutely excruciatingly um, informative boarding school, eight years of elitist aristocracy. And then I went to drama school, and within months I was into so with love. So I went from this restricted childhood into a incredibly explorative hashish driven madness <laughs> you know london in the 60s I and mean, think about it you know that juxtaposition and then you know my career and my career has encompassed everything from jamie jerry seinfeld to steve jones from sydney poitier to john taylor and back again jimmy page you know i mean miss Pamela, it's a hell of a story you know was i ever sting or rudd Stewart? no have I done a lot of, of, of work? Have I stayed in it? Yeah, 60 years. That's 60 years I've been in show business. Eight years old, I did a commercial. Wow. So I, I've been through a lot of shit, man, you know, and I've experienced a lot of things. I've met a lot of great people and a lot of nasty people and been involved in horrible business deals and, and record deals and in glorious situations like Live Aid. Who the hell would put me in Live Aid? I remember standing on that stage in front of two billion people, replacing a critic star named Robert Palmer and singing Get It On, who, by the way, Bolin was a dear friend of mine. So all of these things that have happened to me have been magic. So the documentary is about just that. All of these experiences, why? Why did all of these things, what's the thread? You know, well, you find out when you watch it. I mean, you know, there's this footage of me with Johnny Depp and, and Jump Street, and then you cut to me half naked at CBGB's. I mean, dude, it's a hell of a fucking story. It, it really is. And and now you mentioned Steve Jones and you mentioned Clem Burke before. You were, of course, in a band called Checkered Past with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Opened up for all kinds of people, uh, Duran Duran, Rat, and, cl- and closed them down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> But it was great live. The record, not so good. But live, fantastic. Well, well, talk to me about the band. Again, it only lasted three years. How did it start? Where did it go right? Where did it go wrong? I mean, the, musically speaking, with Steve and Clem and Nigel, um, 
and Tony Sales. And Tony, I mean, that's, that's, that's a powerhouse right there. So why was it not able to develop into something uh, more significant? If- many, many reasons oh. um, that have happened to 99% of acts out there. It is very difficult to make it whatever it is. I had an album called I'm Only Human, and it was a hit in England. And I went to England, and I knew Steve, you know, because when the Pistols played San Francisco, I was one of the fortunate few who went up there to see them. And I, you know, synchronistically stayed in the same hotel as them. And, and Steve came up and he said, here, Michael, I stole a Silverhead record. Right? So we were, we've been prison buddies ever since. But we thought, well, after the I'm Only Human thing, I came back to New York and we put a band together with Nigel and Frank Infanti from Blondie and Clam and me and Steve. And we did a gig at the Peppermint Lounge and we opened with Vacation by the Go-Go's. And, and the crowd went insane. They were so aghast at a sex pistol doing, all I ever wanted, you know, vacation. And it was so hilarious. And we thought, oh, God, this is so subversive. And we, you know, got it together and played some rocking gigs. And then we got signed to EMI by Gary Gersh. And we got a producer who fucked it up when we let him. And we let him because <clears throat> the majority of the band, I was sober at the time, were, shall we say, chemically altered. And that's the reason. So, I mean, so, I mean, so drugs has had... I mean, it comes up over and over again on how it screwed up some of these bands, right? I mean, it's 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 yeah. incredibly destructive. All of them. Um, I'm going to throw this out there just because the other day I was sitting in front of the TV on on one of the movie channels and with my son, and a Schwarzenegger movie comes on, Commando, and we watched mm. it all the way through, and and turns out that Power Station with you singing. Mm. <laughs> you know, the credits there. Um, talk to me about that recording with the power station. Unfortunately, it's just one track. It's called We Fight for Love. Also, uh, someday, somehow, someone's going to pay. Um, why not more recordings with the band? Why was it limited to just one? I mean, I know the other guys had Duran Duran and this and that, but was it just circumstance or did it just not feel right? Why just the one song? I'm a rock and roll singer. Right. I'm not an R&B singer. I, I adore Robert, and I've known him a lot longer than Duran Duran knew him. You know, I knew him in Vinegar Joe with Elkie Brooks way back, late 60s, early 70s, and love him and admired him tremendously. But I'm not, I'm not a member of Chic. You know, it's not, it's that's not my thing. You know, I, I like Steve Marriott. You know, um, Andy and I toyed with the idea. You know, he played on my solo record actually right after that. Him and Steve, I thought that was a great combination. But the track itself I wrote uh, for Commander with Andy and recording them was a delight. Tony Thompson, clearly one of the top five drummers of all time. I mean, there's no fans or buts about that. An amazingly creative and inventive original drummer. And I really enjoyed it. But dude, they went back to Duran, you know, and um, reconvened with Robert, which was much, much more, um, I think, the right thing to do. You know, not my cup of tea. I had to sing and learn all of those songs in, what, five days? Uh, you know, when you... Robert dropped out, you know, it's just, it, you know, it, that sort of, you know, the way Robert used to sing, and it's like riding a horse and really holding the reins. And he had this sort of inner power that he didn't explode. 
you know, it was always very restrained and subtle. I am about as subtle as a sledgehammer. (laughs) And I adore screaming (laughs) into a microphone, sweating on the first few rows. That's what I like more than anything else in the world. Yeah, and that and, and that, that's that's not it's incompatible to the uh, uh, discipline of uh, the R and B rock and roll vibe of um, you know the uh, power Durant. station and 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 that came through on the Live Aid performance, by the way. Now, now speaking of not subtle, and I, I, at some point, I guess we should start wrapping this up. But uh, Murdoch, the character you portrayed in um, MacGyver. Mm. Uh, you know, very, very important to the to the storyline. Very important to that series. Um, just talk to me about that because you know you've created memorable music. You have a memorable radio show, uh, but you're also a memorable actor. I mean, you cannot think of that series and not think Murdoch. I mean, you're you're almost secondary uh, to to the main character. Um, I I moved to Pasadena. I went to the uh, gym. I found a gym. You know, I work out like a fiend. I adore it. It's beautiful. I went to a gym yesterday morning, and the girl behind the counter looked at me, dropped her clipboard, and said, my mother is still in love with you. And as a consequence, I now use the gym free. (laughs) (laughs) So Murdoch is absolutely iconic. You say good for the series, good for the fucking network is what it was. And, you know, it, it was a huge character. I was nominated for an Emmy. I mean, it was it was an amazing experience, man, because I got to play all these different characters within Murdoch with the disguises. I got to learn how to um, use weapons, which I think, given the current political climate, is probably a good thing. And I... Um, did all the stunts, you know, and because I do Tai Chi and I do all of these martial arts. And it was an amazing thing to be this mad, villainous guy that was really vulnerable uh, at the heart of it. So it was wonderful. It's just to this day, because of syndicated television, you know, it's still on there. You you can see all of my TV stuff. (laughs) I was going to say crap, you know, Melrose Place and Seinfeld and Roseanne's and you name it, you know. There's 150 hours of American television I've done over the years. That's incredible. Now, but of course, Murdoch does stand out. Uh, was there was there ever talk of a Murdoch movie or or bringing you to the to the big screen as Murdoch in, in as a James Bond villain or or anything or? No, if you were a network and you had a series and that was going to go to a feature, you'd get Sir Ben Kingsley or you'd get Hopkins or you'd get, you know, the the current box office champion. The thing about me is I've always been under the radar to a great degree. If you're going to make a feature movie, feature movies are business relationships. You cast it with big stars so, you know, audiences will go to it. Today, of course, you don't need the big stars. You make stars because of the computer graphic-oriented Marvel comic superhero men in tights vibe is is the star. But in those days, to get a major villain, you're going to get a major actor. So I've always been under the radar on that level. But on TV, um, I you know contributed something. So I think that would be the answer. I was never approached to do a movie no they did a a tv movie and they did the spoof you know the snl spoof and now there's a new series 
um, with a, an actor called David um, Desmalchian, who plays Murdoch, who is fabulous and a wonderful actor. And we've become friends over social media. That's, I was, um, was going to ask you about that. Uh, it, 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 I guess it must be sort of strange, or, but at the same time also flattering that the character is so, yeah, you know, he's out there doing it. And uh, I, I, we'll finish on this because we, we've done 45 minutes and, uh, you know, um, Pamela. Long, yeah. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah, you know, you showed up in in a couple of her books. Was that? Strong <laughs> way of putting it. Yeah, we were together for fourteen years, and we have a thirty-six-year-old son. But yes, yeah, he did show up. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to, but but what uh, was that? Um, I I don't even know what what word I want to say, but but. You know, well, I think what you're trying to ask me is, how do I feel about marrying a groupie? Right. Um, so what, what it is, is the pedigree of Miss Pamela is incomparable. She is a brilliant woman who was one of the first feminists who fucked who she wanted to fuck, dressed the way she wanted to dress, which was virtually three doilies in a sequin. And um, I had tremendous respect for why? Because I believe in rock and roll. You know, and I am not a judgmental man. And in some fantastic way, the GTOs were as important to my generation in London, uh, the bluesy driven rock and rollers who adored uh, the mythology of America. And when I met uh, Miss P in New York, we made a movie together. Originally, you know, Keith Moon was going to play this role, but they couldn't find him. And <laughs> so he got me and we met and uh I adore her. I respect her. She's an incredible writer. Like you, she studied um, being of service to children and uh, so on and so forth. Um, but she teaches these writing classes to these young women to express themselves. She, is, she has created an incredible vibe about her. And to this day, we remain great friends. Yeah, absolutely great. And uh, of course, uh, Michael, a great pleasure. It's the second time we've done this and uh, there's just so much to ask. Uh, we, you know, we didn't cover WKRP, and but for another time. Scum. Yeah. Scum, baby. Scum <laughs> of the earth. Well, listen, Mitch, I really appreciate you going to the places that I like to go to. Yeah. You know, there's only so much one can talk about in terms of Jimmy Page's greatness. And I am just delighted to be able to get some kind of uh, a vibe out to everybody that listens to your terrific podcast. And I wish you all the best in the future. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I look forward to doing this again. And um, hey, Me too. hopefully we'll get another uh, new solo album very soon because the last one the key to the universe with i want love to punch me in the face which i think is a great song great title Dig it. Uh, we need more yeah. we need more thank you well you'll get it in january my friend thank you thank you thank you mitch so much have a wonderful day you too now cheers bye-bye bye Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, 